Well, good morning. Glad you survived this time of food excess. Um, what's the, the best leftover, right? Um, so it's a serious debate. I'm a, I'm a turkey sandwich man, slice of American and mayo. Um, but, uh, you know, you can, you can continue to overindulge even beyond the day. So um, <clears throat> let it be a season of us uh, gearing up for, for Christmas and Advent and coming and slowing down and pushing away a little bit too, um, which leads us to swimming upstream, right? Like this is a time of excess, a time of we celebrate, um, we celebrate um, all the extra and we, we, we get into the holiday season and, and celebrate even some more extra um, but we're in this series um, uh, that we've, we've called Swimming Upstream. It's been a study of Elijah and Elisha. And we're looking at, at First and Second Kings, a few chapters at the end of First Kings, a few chapters at the beginning of Second Kings. And we're asking this question about, or we're asking questions about, um, how, how, does it, how do you live in a culture that seems to be moving in a direction when that direction is leading to, to places that are, that are destructive, places that are hurtful, places that, that give you more than just indigestion, okay? Um, how do you live and, and move when, when it seems like the current is pushing us to places that aren't healthy? And that's, that's what we're doing. If you have your Bible and you want to start to turn to 1st, 2nd Kings, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can, you can online at mylcc.info. There's a card with today's, uh, it'll have today's uh, scripture on there. Um, but we're going we're gonna to wind up in 2nd Kings chapter 4. But, but before we get to 2 Kings chapter 4, I want to just recap a couple thoughts about where we've been. We, we started by, again, we've, we've anchored this around the prophets Elijah and Elisha, two uh, confusingly similarly named men um, who Elijah came first. And, and Elijah uh, lived at this, at this time, and he operated and worked at this time where, where there was a powerful king and queen. And that king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, were, they were wicked. Um, and in fact, they were so wicked that it, it says, like, there was no one, the scriptures tell us, there was no one who came before them who was as wicked as they were. That they, they worshiped false gods and they, they, they invited all the practices of the ancient pagans into the, the, the nation of Israel. And, and Elijah had to speak out against those things. And, and Elijah took risks um, Elijah, Elijah helped provide for people who had needs. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we actually saw some stories that, are, that will parallel today. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we saw Elijah providing, um, providing, providing oil and flour for a widow so that, so that she and her son could eat. And, and also in 1 Kings 17, then that widow's son dies and Elijah comes in and prays over him and he comes back to life. And we see those stories, the miraculous work of God. But what we also see happening is that you have the king and queen that, as, as we've talked about in this series, they represent this, that, that downstream sort of push of culture, what we've called the dysfunctional power structures of the culture around us, that, that they, were, they were pushing an agenda, they were pushing, they were pushing ideas, they were pushing beliefs and practices that ultimately were destructive to the people of God. Those who would claim God, Yahweh, Jehovah God, as the one true God, these practices would have taken them away from him. And that dysfunctional power structure, it just grows. It's almost, it's almost like osmosis. It just swallows up things around it until, and it doesn't rest until 
everything is just obedient to it. It's not like it has even a consciousness of this. It's just the way that the culture moves. And if you, if you use the, go back to that water analogy, if you, get, if you get in the water, it's what push, starts to push you down the stream. And that was happening during the time of Elijah. And Elijah was, had to confront that dysfunctional power. And, um, and he, was, he was a prophet, and so his role was to speak against it. To, he would receive messages from God, and the people saw him as the very voice of God. And, and, but, but that prophet, it wasn't just the dysfunctional power and the prophet. There were people that were, that were engaged at the time, and they had a decision to make. Will I listen to the voice of the prophet, or will I listen to the voice of the power? Will I, when I get into the stream of my world and my culture, will I just let the current take me where it's going to, or am I going to work against it? Am I going to, am I going to at least stand my ground and not let it push me downstream? And around here, we've called that, that group of people, those who had that decision to make, we've, we've said, those people are the remnant. They're the people that God preserves in the midst of, of the larger culture that are actively saying no to the dysfunctional power and yes to God when he asks them to, to, to stand their ground or he asks them to go a different way. And so Elijah operated in that world and he spoke against it and he worked with this remnant of people. And, and we find that, that Elijah, though, as a character, as an individual, Elijah, really he really wrestled with, um, with his own feelings. You, we see several times where Elijah goes into hiding and in hiding he, he has this almost sense of depression. There's one point where he asks for his life to be taken away. And Elijah seems to have a sensitivity to, the, to what's going on, and, and he, he, he tends, it looks like he's internalizing this struggle in ways that, that, that really cause him to have a lot of internal tension. And as, as Dan shared with us last week, though, there's this, there's this passing of the torch. The, 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 the torch is handed off from Elijah to Elisha, and there, it's, it's very ceremonial. Elijah puts his cloak on Elisha, and Elisha begins to, to follow Elijah and to do the same kinds of things and to, to proclaim the same kind of message. But over time, the culture shifts and the power shifts a little bit too. Elijah is taken up to heaven. He doesn't die. He's taken up to heaven. And Elisha is given the power of God to speak as the prophet of God. And, and it's, there's a lot of symbolism in it, but, but one of the things that happens that Elisha, Elijah, sorry, Elijah asks Elisha, he says, what would you like? What would you like? And Elisha, in a moment of clarity, says, I'd like to have a double portion of what you had from God. Now, again, that could mean any number of things, but, but here's what it's safe to say when, as far as you try to quantify double portion. What he's asking for is, I want more of what I've been getting from you all along. Like you've been, I've seen you do things and I've, I've seen that you hear from, the, from God and I've, I've walked with you and I've, what you have, I want more of it. This, this connection to God, this relationship with God where you speak in his place. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see some places where that actually, that double portion actually is a part of the story. Where, the, where we started in 1 Kings chapter 17 with, with um, a miraculous provision for a widow of some, some oil and some flour and a miracle of a widow's son coming back from, from death. 
we're going to see that that story is, is sort of repeated in the Scripture, but in, in kind of double portion ways. So if you have a Bible, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to read sort of a lengthy section of Scripture today. <clears throat> but I, I, I want us to hear these stories, and at the same time, I want us to think about the, the remnant people in these stories. Yeah, Elisha is there, and in some ways, the dysfunctional power has shifted. Ahab is no longer on the scene when we get here. But there's still a cultural push to be a certain way. And so I want to I read through these. So if you, we'll just start at verse 1 in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. It says this, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? Stop there for a second, the middle of verse 2. So just to set this up, Elisha is now the, the, the prophet speaking for God, but there are other prophets that we've been introduced to, none by name, but there are other prophets that we've been introduced to who also speak on the Lord's behalf. And, and one of those prophets has died, and now his wife and children are left with debt. Okay, They're left with debt. And someone's coming to take the sons as slaves because of this debt. And Elisha asked this question. He says, what do you have? I love what he asked here. What do you have in the house? What do you already have? Okay. Before we get into like, what's, what, what's, what can be done for you, we need to answer the question of what you already have. So keep reading. Started at the beginning of verse 2 there. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were, were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there isn't another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay, so we see there's a, there's a, a sort of a retelling of the, the first Kings 17. There's a widow. She has oil and flour. And, and miraculously with Elijah, the oil and the flour, are, they continue to be provided to them so that they can eat and sustain their life. Now here in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha comes into the story with this widow, and he says, what do you have? She says, I've got this oil, and he says, just go grab a bunch of, bunch of vessels, a bunch of jars, okay? And we're going to pour the oil into those jars. And, and miraculously, they keep pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And it's a double portion moment, right? Like, this is what Elijah did, but it's what Elijah did kind of on steroids, he, Elijah provided for the widow and her son, and, and for Elijah himself in that instance. This is going to provide for all the people around, and it's actually going to buy them out of the debt so they can live free. Okay? Now, there's, there's all kinds of stuff in there, but we're really going to focus on the next story. But I want to pick up a couple themes from this. The first is, where, notice where Elisha started. He didn't send her out to go get something she didn't currently have. He said... What do you already have at your disposal? 
What's already there that you can use? That God's going to provide for you based on what's already present. Okay? Now, again, we could go all, down all kinds of trails with this, right? And when, when it comes to my debts, the things that I owe, I want God to like magically you know, deliver like the lottery ticket from heaven and, and show up and pay off all my debts. I've got it all worked out with him. Like when the millions come in, here's, here's all the debts I'm going to pay off for me and others around me, and then here's all the, the good causes I'm going to give to. Right, God? Now just give me the millions. It's what's out there. But this story says, what Elisha says to her is, what do you already have? What's already in your hands? The answer to what God's going to do is what already rests in your home. It's what's already in your possession. Okay? Now, I want to keep reading because I want to continue that connection. Verse 8. Verse 8. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. That doesn't happen to me either. Anyway, um, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food, (laughs) okay? So now, I'm going to spare you the map, okay? But Shunem is a little city kind of in the northern area of of Israel. Um, And and it's not far from the coast. It's about a half day's walk to Mount Carmel, which is an important site, holy site. But Shunem is in an interesting place because it's, it's at the edge of this valley and at the edge of the mountains. It's kind of where the valley meets the mountains. And, and Shunem was, was unique in that, in many ways, Shunem was drought-proof, okay? Because you had water that would run down from the mountains. So it's a very fertile land. It's sort of the breadbasket of, of Palestine, if you will. Um, you know, we, we, when we picture these kinds of places, we normally picture arid places. But Shunem is very lush. It's very green. There are a lot of crops there. Okay? And so this woman lived there. She's, she's wealthy. Um, and, and so she, she has resources, and she's using those resources to meet Elisha's needs. Okay? So read on with me. Verse 9. <clears throat> she said, this wealthy woman said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there, okay? So also, culturally, not an unusual practice. Um, they didn't have, you know, there wasn't a holiday inn at every exit along the road, and so you, hospitality culturally was very important. It's very important that, and again, it was very important that when, when people who were important or significant but didn't have a lot of, of, of means to provide for themselves, that, that they just relied on the hospitality of others to take care of them. And so this woman in Shunem says, I, I, this guy's passing by a lot, and it actually, well, sorry, somebody just buzzed the tower. Um, so, there, but, but, but Shunem was actually interestingly placed because Elisha, who had a hometown, his hometown was about a half day's walk one direction, and Mount Carmel was about a half day's walk the other direction. So this woman's Shunem, the town of Shunem, is about halfway between where Elisha would have called his home and where Elisha was going and spending a lot of time in his, in his function as the prophet of God. And so Shunem is in this place where, yeah, he's passing by all the time, and, and she becomes sort of a, a patron to him, okay? She, she provides for his needs on a regular basis. It goes beyond, let me share a meal with you, to let me bring you into my home. Now, notice the connection. I don't think these two stories are just randomly placed side by side, okay? Elisha says to the first woman, what do you have available to, to serve, to use, for God. 
And this woman is already sort of naturally using what she has to meet the needs of God's servant. Okay? All right, keep reading with me. Verse 11. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite, when he, call this Shunammite, sorry, when he, when he had called her, he stood before him. And he said to him, this is, sorry, the pronouns are so confusing. He's saying to Gehazi, his servant, say now to her, I can only assume she's standing in the door, all right? Uh, say to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. Now, again, here's interesting interaction because Elisha brings his servant Gehazi. He says, go get the woman. This is interesting that he's not alone with this woman. I think that's culturally fascinating as well. But to move, to move on, he brings Gehazi and this woman together, and he says, he says, what is it that, like, why are you doing this? Okay? There's almost a little bit of skepticism in it, right? Like, why are you being so kind to me? What's in it for you? What are you hoping is going to happen? It's like, I kind of know the lay of the land. I know how the world works, you know. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. What is it that you want in this arrangement? And her answer is interesting because she says, I dwell among my own people, okay? Which is a, is a way of saying, I'm not, notice the connection back to the first story, I'm not owned by anyone. I don't really have needs. I'm independent. I live... I live a life of, of like self-determinacy. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I don't really need anything. So you can save your word for the king or the commander of the army or whoever it is. You can save it. I don't need it. I'm okay. I'm serving you. Okay? I'm serving you. So we see in her not just a hospitality, but we see even like an admirable sort of approach to life that like, no, I'm... God's given me more than I need, and I'm using that excess to help, to help God's work. So keep reading, verse 14. And he, being Elisha, and it, it, again, it changes. It, I can only guess she had left at this point. It says, and he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. So here's this interaction again. Elisha and Gehazi, his servant, are there, and the, the woman is standing in the doorway. And, and we, we're, we're, we're introduced to this, this setup where she's, an, she's an, an older, well, she's not necessarily older, but she's a woman with a husband who's older, and yet there's no son, right? There's no son. In verse 16, it says, and he, being Elisha, said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son, now, she hadn't asked for this, right? Got it. She hadn't asked for this. She hadn't, she hadn't said, this is what I really want. <laughs> okay? You ever like, get the gift you didn't ask for? And you're like, oh, thanks. In my house growing up, we had this green like, statue thing. It was like a, I think it was a toad or something. But it was real gnarly. <laughs> and it was kind of the joke. Like, it, Sorry, Mom, if you're listening. Um, it would... It would come out at certain times, and then we started to connect, like, oh, it came out when, the, like, those guests were coming over, <laughs> okay? Probably the ones who gave us the weird statue. But, like, did you ever get the gift? Now, this is bigger than a weird statue, right? Like, you're going to have a son. 
Now, she hadn't asked for this, but, but again, the, the cultural importance of a son was so critical. For better or worse, this is not a commentary on whether or not it should be this way, but, but this is the way things were. For a, a, a woman of means, her means came from her husband. She could not have been independently wealthy in this culture. Her needs were met, but they were met by her husband. And she had a function in life. Like, she had a way to, like, repay all that her husband would have done for her, and it would have been to provide a son, an heir, someone for a legacy. But what's set up in the story is this, that her husband is old and there is no son. There may have been daughters. It doesn't tell us that. But there was no son. And so for centuries, this isn't unique to this culture, but for centuries, a woman who hadn't provided a son to a powerful and influential and wealthy husband was a woman whose life had, had, had not been fulfilled, right? It hadn't been fulfilled. And so Elisha says to her, about a year from now, you're going to have a son. Not a child, a son. Keep reading with me. <clears throat> this is in the middle of, well, start again at verse 16. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Right? Now, she's got incredulity, right? She's, she's incredulous about this. I, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to have a son. It could have been tied to the age of her husband. Okay? It could have been tied to the fact that, that, that she maybe just wasn't ready for this. But she, she goes to this place that I, I find fascinating. She says, she says, don't lie to me. And I think that that thread starts, we start to pull on that thread a little bit, and we start to find there's more to it than just my husband's old. Okay? Keep reading with me, because the story goes on. Verse 18. When the child had grown, so the child is born, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. So we see, we're guessing that this child is somewhere around the age of five. Okay? Years later, he's grown some. He's still carrying size. Okay? Verse 20. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Okay? And then he died. It reminds me of Alfred. Alfred was my turtle. Um, my sister's boyfriend, some, I don't know, he found a turtle and he brought it to me. I loved turtles when I was, I was a little older than this guy, nine or ten years old. Um, Alfred the turtle, but my parents had a rule about Alfred the turtle. He wasn't allowed to live in the house, okay? So I could bring Alfred in in his, we had a, like a plastic bin. I could bring Alfred in and I could like mess around with him and turtles are great to mess around with, right? They, they have like one trick, like get near him and they do the turtle thing. Um, so, so I would bring him in and, and I'd, I'd, I'd get Alfred to do his one trick. And you may or may not know this, I grew up in Florida. Um, but so, so part of and that, that will become pertinent here in a moment. Um, so, but part of the deal was, like, Alfred and his bin, he had to go outside, like, when I would go to school in the morning. So, so I, I remember this vividly one day. I, I take, I, I go outside. We had a, a back porch that was, wasn't, like, walled in or screened in. It was just a porch. And I took Alfred, and I put him outside, okay? And, and I'm, I'm holding it like it's a basin. It was a, maybe a 12-inch deep plastic bin that Alfred lived in. And I put Alfred down, and as I turn around, I hear a commotion, <sighs> 
okay? So I go to the back door, and I turn around, and I, I kid you not, there was a seagull that had swooped down and picked up Alfred, okay? And was flying, like our, our backyard was pretty narrow, maybe 10 or 12 feet this direction. It went further that way, but 10 or 12. And flying up this way with Alfred, no, you know, it's like, it's very dramatic. Um, no, and, and, and then the, the, the seagull gets like, you know, just beyond the neighbor's fence and down goes Alfred, okay? <clears throat> now, I don't want to trivialize this mother's pain, okay? But it's the closest I've got, okay? It's the closest I've got. No, but, but understand, like, she had been given a gift, okay? She'd been given a gift, and then in short order, the gift is gone. The gift is taken. But this gift was more than just a turtle given by a sister's boyfriend. This was a gift that was attributed directly to a word of God. So wrapped up in this gift is much more than just simply like it's something that I wanted or desired and it was given to me. Wrapped up in this gift was, who is God to give me this thing? Are you with me? So the son dies, verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. She takes him to Elisha's little room that she built for him fascinating, right? The kid probably had his own room in the house. That's not where she took him. Next verse, then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. I don't know what to do with that phrase just yet, okay? I don't know what to do with that phrase just yet, but I can tell you this, it's not true. Okay? All's not well with this woman. We're starting to detect something about her. And, and for all of her hospitality and for all of her generosity, there's something here about her, her state of heart, her state of emotion, where she, she, she's not confiding in her husband. She's not telling him what's happened. She's just headed to Elisha. Keep going. Verse 24. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. He was about a half day's journey from where she lived. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? That was the words. Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. She's still resisting the disclosure of what's happened. Gehazi was there when the promise was made. It may have been years ago. But this was Elisha's servant who stood there when Elisha said to her, this child is coming, it's a gift from God. He knew the context. He was a little bit closer to the promise than the servants. He would have been a little bit closer to understanding the pain. But she still says, all is well. Verse 27. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and has not told me. And now we start to find out why she's being dishonest. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Look at what's happened here. Look at what's happened. 
She says, I wasn't asking for this. I wasn't asking for this when you gave it to me. And in fact, before you gave it to me, I thought we had a deal in place. And that deal was, don't lie to me about this. Will I have a son? Will there be an heir? Is this going to happen? And so I've got it, and now it's taken from me. And she's connecting with a very real deep pain. So much so that she throws herself at Elisha's feet. The act is significant. Remember who she was? She was a woman of wealth. She was a woman of means. She was a woman who lived, dwelt amongst her own people, cared for her own needs. She wasn't dependent on anyone besides her family. And yet she finds herself in this moment of desperation. And she comes in contact with the man of God, the person that that for her would have represented God himself. And she throws herself at his feet, pleading and begging. She was so dignified before, right? She She seemed like she was so put together. And yet... Here she is, throwing herself at Elisha's feet in the pain of this loss. Verse 29, he, being Elisha, said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. (laughs) It's kind of rude. Um, But those are the instructions. Lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's, I'm sorry, it's too much for us to cover here. Those are the exact words that Elisha said to Elijah when Elijah was getting ready to meet the Lord. Okay, The exact words. She said, I'm not leaving you, Elisha. I'm not running to the child. I'm not running with Gehazi. I'm staying here with you. Hang on to that. So he arose, this is in verse 30, so he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child but there was no sign of life. Therefore he, Gehazi, returned to meet him, Elisha, and told him, the child has not awakened. The first try, Elisha gave instructions and said, go do this, but nothing happened. There was no change. Verse 32. There's one Elisha, that when is undetermined. Um, When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them. It's just Elisha and this dead body. <clears throat> and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child. He put, his, he put his body across the child. He put his mouth on his mouth. He breathed into him. His eyes on his eyes. His hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Notice the miracle. In huge context here as well, Elisha's been up at Mount Carmel. He's performing priestly duties. Okay? He's, 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 inter, he's in intercession for the people of God on the mountain. And what Elisha does here is, is against the law. There's no way to put it. Numbers 29 would say that a priest cannot touch a dead body. He's breaking the rules. He's, he's, he's entered into her pain, and he's broken the rules on her behalf. 
that he would have had to have, he would have, following this, he would have had to have gone to a ceremonial cleansing that would have prohibited him or kept him from keeping the rest of his priestly duties. But he lays on the child. He <clears throat> breathes into the child. He touches their eyes. It sounds so weird to us, right? He puts his hand in his hand. That makes a little more sense. And the flesh of the child became warm. Verse 35, then he got up again, he, Elisha, and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon the child. The child sneezed seven times. I'm sure it's significant. I just don't know why. And the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi, the servant, and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. This is a, a double portion of what we'd seen in Elijah. In the first story, you have, you have this widow that, that her, her material needs are provided for. And in the second story, you have a woman who's lost a son in Elijah's case, it was, sort of, it was sort of quick and fresh, but it was isolated and it was foreign. They were in a foreign land. And, and who knows who heard this story? This is right smack dab in the middle of the people of God. This woman has lost her son. And it was probably quite a bit of time for Elisha and the woman to get from where they were at the mountain down to the, to the home. It might have been a day later. And the child has been laying there. And the miracle occurs. And the child comes back to life. And so I want to look at her story. Because like a lot of us, <clears throat> she, she, she looks like a lot of us. She was probably smiling when you saw her. Okay? Um, <clears throat> her Facebook probably had a lot of nice pictures. Okay? you know, anecdotes and, and little inspirational quotes. She probably had a picture, like, next to the orphan that she sponsors. Um, she had means. She probably had a minivan and an SUV. Um, <clears throat> but she kept saying something that wasn't true, right? She kept saying, all is well. It's all fine. When Elisha says, what are you lacking? What do you want? She said, no, I'm good. I'm good. I live amongst my own people. My needs are cared for. Even when after the child dies and her husband says, what's, what, what's going on? What's the matter? All is well. When she confronts Gehazi headed to Elisha, all is well. And I think she's so much like us, right? Because we we have a tendency to work really hard to put things together in a way that we can say all is well and people actually believe it. They actually accept that as an answer. But every so often, I think you, and I think you because I think you're probably, at least in some ways, a bit like me, you get hit with hidden longings or covered pain. Things, things that, that, that strike us and we go, where did that come from? Why did I have such a, such a violent reaction to that request or that question? We hear a phrase that might remind us of past rejection 
we see someone or our paths cross with someone and it reminds us of a time where, where we, were, we were maybe celebrating alongside them and our celebration turned to mourning and theirs turned to joy and it just hurts. Or someone that we were counting on to care for us, to be with us, and they let us down. And that pain comes back out. And you see, there's upstream and downstream ways of dealing with this. Okay? There's upstream and downstream ways of dealing with this. Culturally, what we, she's doing the same thing that we're supposed to do culturally, right? Buck up. It's going to be all right. Just get past it. And so we might, we might cover it up that way and just prove our strength by holding it together. Or maybe... Maybe we just kind of medicate it, maybe literally, but maybe we medicate it with just diversion. We occupy our minds with something besides the pain, the hurt. Maybe we, we, we try, to, try to bury it in places and, and, and redirect it into some kind of energy that, that might be positive, but the pain's still there. The pain's still there. And you might be sitting here right now saying, Tom, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel that pain. And I would say right now, I would say, that's why it's called hidden pain. That's why it's called hidden longing. At the moment, we may not feel it, but there's something there. There's something there for all of us. It's present. It's lurking. And so in the last few minutes here, I just want to take a look at this, at what we see with her. Because I think she, she deals with this at first in a, in a downstream way. She's been dealing with it a certain way her whole life, and now she's confronted with it again. And she has a choice about what to do with her pain. She has a choice. And she makes a choice that's unique. There's a lot of analogies for life, right? Like every day is a winding road, maybe, right? So there's a lot of analogies for life, and it's one, there's one way to think about life that is just we're on a path and we're headed to a destination. I'm okay with that. This isn't a battle of analogies, but I'm going to use a different analogy today, okay? Because I think life comes at us in cycles, okay? I think life comes at us in cycles. Sometimes life is a winding road. It is, okay? And you just kind of wind around. But sometimes life is, there's cycles to life, Okay? And we start up there, and we just kind of move through. It seems, you ever, do you ever feel that? You're, and I, I think you do. But do you ever feel like, gosh, I just can't seem to get off the Ferris wheel? Like, it just seems like I'm going around and around. And I think for this woman, we can see some of the things that we feel with that. Because the first thing is this. At somewhere along our journey, we were introduced to some pain. Okay? We were introduced to some pain. And, and for, for you... For me, it might be even the pain that she senses. Might, it might be the longing for a child that went unmet. It might be singleness, the longing for a mate that's gone unmet. It might be a parent that was absent. Or a spouse that left us. Maybe it's a dream that died. Or something that I was chasing and everybody told me, if you just work hard enough, you'll get it. But doggone it, I was working so hard. And the dream died. 
Again, it might just be a single comment. It might be something that was said to you at a critical point in your journey through life. And the words just replay. There's some truth to them, but there's an awful lot of hurt in it. And we start to see that this woman had this pain, right? Because when Elisha says to her, you're going to have a child, she actually heard the first word out of her mouth in the scriptures is no. No. I don't want that. I don't want it. Okay? I don't want it. I think we're introduced with this woman. I think we're introduced to a hidden longing. I think we're introduced to something that she, she really did want, but she didn't want it at this point. And I think it's because it was probably attached to pain. It's clear that there's great pain in this idea. It's clear that there's great pain in the idea of being a mother to a son. But she's, when she's introduced to it, she doesn't want it. Um, recently, recently uh, a voice with wisdom no less than Jim Carrey um, He's, he did an interview, or a documentary really, but he talked about his dad. I want you to hear, this is a really short clip, and, and the audio is, it, it, you'll have to listen close, but, but listen to what he says. He's, he, this is Jim Carrey talking about his dad. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? It's one thing to fail when you're chasing your dream, but what about when you've compromised? You've chased the dream, you had to give up the dream, and now you've compromised and failure is there. The pain sort of re-enters, doesn't it? And I think what we hear going on there, and I think what we see in the Shunammite woman is that somewhere along as we cycle through these things, we actually, I think we go through a, a stage of negotiation. And I think this is exactly what this woman did. I Forgive me, because I do have to read between the lines a little bit. But I, but I think that this woman had negotiated uh, an arrangement with God, with life, with her pain, that said, I'm okay without a son. I'm fine. I've moved on. I wanted one, but I've dealt with it, and it's all good now. I'm fine without one. And so when the presentation comes that says, you're going to have a son, Notice that response. No way. You don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. I, I, I can't go through this again. And in fact, I have a deal in place. I've got a deal in place. I'm okay without this, but don't tease me. Don't tease me. But it's not left alone, right? Because as she goes through, it's reopened. It's reopened. And in, in chapter 4, verse 28, she says, 
Didn't I say when, 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 Elisha, when the son is taken and she's on the mountain with Elisha, she brings this back up and she says, didn't we have a deal? Didn't we have a deal? You weren't going to lie to me. And now I don't have a son. It's the way that her pain is expressed. But she doesn't end there. And I think this is what's fascinating about her. She throws herself at Elisha's feet. Remember, for her, Elisha was, was God standing there. He was the, the, who, the, the person who spoke for God. And when Elisha sends a way for this to be made right, look at what she says in verse 30. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I'm not leaving you. Now that you is Elisha, yes, in the flesh. But, but, but again, the distinction for her between Elisha in the flesh and who God was was a very, very thin line. In the midst of her pain, she says, this hurts and I've disclosed my pain, but I'm not leaving you, God. I'm not leaving your word. And when the child's alive, she's bowing at, at Elisha's feet, not to worship Elisha, but as an act of, of worship to her God. And she picks up the son, she goes out. I think the, the best way for me to describe this to you is to talk a little bit about, just a minute here, about my journey. When I was a young man committed to the Lord, <clears throat> I had big dreams Okay? And my big dreams always revolved around being the center of attention in God's kingdom. This is disclosure, right? Confession. It revolved around being up front or maybe down front with the microphone on and the Bible open and the one whose voice got to be heard. And God used, God used a couple of um, really, really painful devices to convince me that that dream wasn't worth pursuing. See, in my head, I'd said, no, God, it's for you. But God used these painful voices to put me in a place of, you're not going to be the center of attention. You're not going to be up front. You're not going to have, you're going to be the voice that people listen to. That's not what I've called you to. At least, that's what I understood him to say in 1996 and 1997. And it hurt. Some very, very hurtful things were said to me and about me by some people that convinced me that I wasn't fit to be God's voice. I wasn't fit to do that. And so I negotiated. <laughs> God, I'm still going to serve you but I'm not, gonna, I'm not doing it in the center of everybody because that, that hurts too much. There's too much pain there. So I'm going to do it elsewhere. I'm going to do it elsewhere. And, and I, again, I, the Lord gave me opportunities, and I was able to teach the Bible to really grateful 17-year-olds for years and years. Right? <clears throat> and I did it, and quite frankly, I... I, in full disclosure, like, it, it didn't hurt. And there were bad days, but it didn't hurt. The pain wasn't there. And then one day, Van Burmeister says, hey, I want you to, 
consider teaching here? And I said, no way. <laughs> Don't lie to me. Nobody wants that. That, answer, that was settled years ago. Decades at that point. But the wound was reopened. And I had to deal with the stuff in my soul about who God had made me to be and why, why anyone would say yes to this. Because I'd convinced myself it was foolish. I'd convinced myself that there's too much pain, there's too much hurt, and quite frankly, you all are too cruel. That's what I told myself. You're going to hurt me. So I'm just going to protect. I'm going to stay back where I'm not exposed, where my pain isn't uncovered. There's different degrees of this sort of hidden pain, these hidden longings. And, and sometimes they're, quite frankly, I, I, this is not to equalize them all or to put them all on the same plane, but they're really similar. I've got a really good friend who says all the time, he says, if you're not living in the midst of a storm in your life, one's on the horizon. It's coming. And the truth is, we wrestle with these hidden longings. There are things in life, there are negotiations that we've made to try and protect ourselves. And the truth is, the wound's going to be reopened at some point. It's, it's going to happen. And the, the question for us is, what do we do in, in the midst of that? In closing, fascinating thing about this woman, this wasn't the end of her story. She shows up again four chapters later in Second Kings chapter 8. Elisha comes to her and he says, he says, a drought is coming. It's going to be a seven-year drought. Now, remember where she lived. Shunem was like the breadbasket. It was supposed to be drought-proof. He says, there's going to be a drought. It's going to last seven years. He actually says, get up from there and go live in a foreign land. <laughs> and she does. She leaves. When the seven years are complete, and she takes her son with her, and they come back to the land, but their land was now in the hands of someone else. And at this point, through providence, it's not chance, right? Through providence, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, was, was serving the king. And this woman comes to the king, and she appeals to him, and she says, there was a point in time where that land was mine. It belonged to my family, and it really rightfully belongs to my son. Would you, would you give it to us? And of course, the king is not interested in upsetting the apple cart, so that's probably not a request that at this point, oh, he's not... He's not likely to answer the request of a powerless widow and her son. But Gehazi's standing there, and he, he tells the king the story of the resurrection of the child. He tells the king about the end of the woman's pain. And the king grants her the land and seven years' worth of the, the output of the land. And she, she comes home. And you see, here's the thing about our pain. In the midst of our pain, it's so easy to say God is cruel. It's so easy to feel like we're being toyed with. It's so easy to shake our fist and say, this isn't worth it. I'm headed back to, to my retreat. But it's not cruelty. God, God is at work in our lives. He's at work in my life and in yours. And the pain has a purpose. 
I don't know what it is for you. I don't even know what it is for me. I see some glimpses, but I don't get to see the whole picture. I don't know what's coming after the drought for you. But I do know that, this, that the pattern of disclosure and faith, trust, that God is who he says he is and he's going to care for us. The same way he cares for the widow who needs the oil, he cared for the woman who seemed like she had it all together. If we'll trust, if we'll trust with our pain. It's why we do groups around here. It's why we invite you constantly to be in a place where your pain is not just your own, but it's shared with other people of God who know him and love him and they love you through him. We carry one another's pain. Would you pray with me? Father, we're, we're people that come to you with, um, with our brokenness and our hurt. And um, you, you promise to carry us and you promise to love us and to be with us. But sometimes it just feels like I'm, I'm on my own. And the pain is, is pretty heavy. And so, God, we, um, we come to you today, and I just, I confess, I confess my, uh, my attempts to, to handle it, to take care of it, to, to insulate myself from it. And, God, I ask that you would... Um, you would continue to heal me. You would continue to raise the dead places in my life back to life. God, it seems bold to pray that you would restore the land, but I pray that you would. You give much more than, than we even anticipate. But God, you take us through difficult places in getting there. God, walk with us. Give us your spirit. Give us your people. That we don't do this alone. And God, now we sing to you because we want to throw ourselves at your feet. And we want to say that, that we are spent and broken. And it's you that can carry our longings. And we ask that you would do it now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.